0: Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd,
1: but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian all the way from Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show... It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have so changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually made it it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah,
0: those howlers, the moments of madness that are sometimes tragic, sometimes comical that have made the world what it is today.
1: G'day folks and welcome to the show. And today we're going to be talking about, well, August. That's right, Mikey, the month of August, the calendar's eighth month, which of course we talked about back in that calendars episode, didn't we? Explaining how in its original form, the Roman calendar only had 10 months, but then to avoid that big pileup during winter, they soon realised they needed to add one or two more. August and July. Right, July after Julius Caesar, of course, and August after Augustus Caesar. Although, as we said in that episode, Augustus wasn't his real name, was it, Mikey? No. That was Octavian. And then when he's adopted by Julius Caesar, and made Caesar himself by the Senate, he's given that subriquet Augustus, as a word in Latin meaning sacred or exalted. Yeah, you know, the whole idea being that Octavia, as Rome's first true emperor proper, he is the most exalted, the one that sits most high above all his fellow Roman citizens.
0: And that's where we get the modern English word august, meaning respected and impressive.
1: Right. Now, okay. Now, you know from our Mark Antony episode, which was one of our earliest, you know very well I'm not the world's greatest fan of Augustus as Caesar. A backstabbing
0: hypocrite, I think were the words you used, mate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I suppose I have tempered my opinion slightly over the intervening seasons and maybe I will give him a a bit of credit you know, for for the Pax Pax Romana. Romana. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, Mikey, the bit I wanted to hark back to today involves another episode that we did about Roman traditions, that tradition of adoption. You know, how even the greatest Roman families would use adoption to avoid all the progeny pitfalls of not being able to produce a son and heir. Exactly right mate, like we were talking about in that episode about Louis Fourteenth. Right, well I was looking over some of my stuff on Augusta's making, I came across something which I had completely forgotten And because, yeah, like we said in that ep, Romans would go to great lengths to pick out a suitable son for adoption, hoping in the most part you know, to secure a good family alliance. And that's why usually you'd find it was the second or third sons who were farmed out to be adopted. Yeah, you know, I mean sons, of course, not
0: daughters. Yeah, well, of course, because daughters could be married off and you could form allegiances that way.
1: Right, but Augustus, he does something which I think might be the only case of its kind in the whole of history – he actually ends up adopting his wife, Livia.
0: His wife.
1: <laughs> I know. Weird. Isn't <laughs> it's, it? it's a bit creepy, mate. <laughs> yeah, it is. And to be honest, Mikey, my first instinct was to think this must be some sort of you know Nero Agapina Oedipus complex thing. But it turns out that Augustus did this for a very sane, very sober, very prosaic reason. You see, Augustus adopted Livia as part of his last will and testament because he knew there were still numerous important factions in Rome who were keen to see the back of Livia once he had died and he understood that the only real way he could 100% protect her as you know as one of his own after he's gone was to adopt her so she survives not just as his widow but also as his adopted daughter <laughs> Yeah, but here's the thing,
0: mate. There's one thing he couldn't protect. Mm. And that was Livia's reputation. Right. Like, like, okay, in the modern world, when we think about Livia, we usually think about you know, the Robert Graves book and, and, of course, the TV series, I Claudius. I Claudius, yes. Now, to be fair to Graves... He based his historical novel on the writings of Suetonius, Tacitus and Dio. Mm. And, and neither of them were huge fans of Augustus's wife. Right. Now, actually, I've got a bit of a theory about this. I think for these later historians, it was hard for them to diss the great Augustus. So they actually landed a lot of his evil doing at her feet. Ah. That's just my personal theory. But how's this? Tacitus said she had the aged Augustus firmly under her thumb. Mm. Also, a real catastrophe to the nation as a mother and to the house of Caesar as a stepmother. Look, it's not so much of a long bow to see that she is actually portrayed as the original evil stepmother. Right. Now, in I, Claudius, she is portrayed as Machiavellian, scheming and murdering, not only to thwart anyone who wanted to return to the Republic, mm. but also to install her eldest son, Tiberius, yes. as emperor. Yeah. She was even accused of poisoning Augustus with a dish of figs. Now, this is most probably a rumour, started by those, those powerful opponents you were talking about earlier mm. who didn't want to see Tiberius emperor. And according to Tacitus, she also bumped off or exiled a lot of other claimants to the top job. Which, you know, you can take with a grain of salt. But she was even rumoured to be involved in the death of Marcellus in 23 BCE. Mm. Then there's the whole tragic tale of Marcus Agrippa Posthumus. Ah. Now, he was the son of Julia the Elder, who's Augustus' daughter. Yes. So as such, he was Augustus' grandson. Mm. But here's the whole adoption thing again. He's actually adopted by the emperor, by Augustus, as his son, mm. which gives the kid a legitimate claim. Mm. But he's also a bit of a wild lad. Right. He's, he's, he's Actually, he's off the rails. In 6 CE, he's exiled for his unruly behaviour to just outside Pompeii. And in the following year, Augustus, with quite a bit of prompting from Livia, <laughs> has this banishment made permanent and he's shipped off to an island in between Corsica and Italy. Mm. By 14 CE, old Augustus kicks the bucket, and there had been some speculation that he's about to let the exiled Postumus back into the Roman court. Right. But the centurion Gaius Sallustus Crispus puts mm. paid to any ascension wrinkles. By killing Posthumus, Now, Tiberius and, of course, Livia are the beneficiaries of this murder. Now, Tiberius goes to the Senate. He pleads his ignorance of the murder, and he becomes emperor Mm. with his mother by his side. Mm. Actually, according to Tacitus and Cassius Dio, a little too much by his side. (laughs) Right, Tiberius really had some mummy issues. Actually, to be fair, Tiberius had a lot of issues. Just to finish off about Livia... I mean, after she dies, Mm. Tiberius vetoes her divine honours. These were only reinstated years later by her grandson, Claudius. Right. Look, and the whole scheming evil stepmother stories, well, they gather momentum. It's got to be said, mate, she was a skilled political player at a time when Rome was rife with intrigue and skullduggery. I mean, let's not forget, her family was on the losing side of the Civil War. Mm. Definitely a formidable woman. Look, her own great-grandson, Caligula, has the final words on her. He refers to her as Odysseus in a Woman's Stole. Welcome back, everyone. So we're talking about the month of August, and we've mentioned Paul's old nemesis, Augustus, but that's not why we're here today, Paulie, is it? No. Now, the reason you've picked this episode is because of another guy you really don't like,
1: (laughs) even though he's a man of the cloth and a beatified saint, no less. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, Mikey. The guy I want to talk about today, sure, many people, especially in the church, they'll tell you he's a hero. But for me, this man is a howler because this is the man by the name of Saint Augustus. Steen. Augustine. St. Augustine. Okay, mate. Give it your best shot. All right. Okay. Augustine of Hippo we're talking about. 354 to 430 AD. He's, like I said, he's born in Hippo, which is the north coast of Africa, modern day algeria in the fourth century and he's actually a berber i like that bloke you talked about before I'm your hero ibn batuda exactly now this augustine he becomes bishop of hippo and according to his contemporary saint jerome he establishes a new the ancient faith even though in his youth he'd be actually being drawn to other faiths such as manichaeism but the thing is mikey it's not just Manichaeism he'd been drawn to in his youth. There'd also been a whole lot of womanising and a whole lot of drinking, which is why, to this day, Augustine is still regarded as the patron saint of brewers. Oh, come on, mate, surely he's our hero, not your howler. Eh? Uh, if only if it was so, Mikey. But you see, in 386, Augustine repents of his ways, mm-hmm. converts to Christianity, is baptised, as St. Jerome tells us in his sources. From then on, Augustine, you've got to remember he's not a saint yet, yeah? he's just a simple Augustine at this day, Age, he develops his own approach to philosophy and theology, and comes up with a number of conclusions. Now, these include things like the grace of Christ is indispensable to human freedom, mm-hmm. the doctrine of original sin, the importance of music in prayer, Kantat, bis orat, he who sings prays twice, and he even comes up with the just war theory putting all those thoughts down in various books, such as The City of God, which also rails against the Visigoths sacking of Rome in 410, his other book, The Christian Doctrine, and the final one, Confessions. Okay, mate, even for a lapsed Catholic, I'm not really seeing much of a problem here. Okay, so those bits might be all well and good, but the bit I want to talk about is what I said before about him being the womanizer and the drunkard. Yeah, the good bits. (laughs) Well, yeah, but I'm afraid that's where it all goes wrong, because in renouncing this past life of his, Augustine decrees that alcohol should not only be banned, but abandoned altogether, which, in my opinion, flies in the face of centuries, if not millennia, of biblical tradition. Okay. Well, you see, I think, Mike, if you're going to be a saint flying in the... Face of biblical tradition is not the way you go about it. Because of course alcohol and alcoholic beverages, they've appeared in the Bible from the very beginning, both in terms of usage and poetic expression. Yeah, sure there's there's also warnings that alcohol is a potential danger that can be unwisely and sinfully abused. I think we both know that note. <laughs> but for the most part, as far as early Christianity was concerned, alcohol was held up as a blessing from God that brings merriment and was cause for celebration. You know, in the old testament There's constant talk about wine being used in sacrificial rituals and festivals. And in the New Testament, of course, you know, the Gospel of St. John, you've got that famous recording of the very first miracle that Jesus performs – being making copious amounts of wine at the wedding feast of Cana.
0: And to this day, I still regard that miracle as his best work.
1: <laughs> because, of course, you've got the whole Jesus instituting the ritual of wine and the Eucharist at the Last Supper. You know, the fruit of the vine, the new covenant of my blood and all that. Yes, but, madam, I'm also going to mention one of my grandmother's favourite quotes from the Bible. Mm. It's God lambasting Moses'
0: brother Aaron with... Wine and spirituous liquor shall ye not drink, thou and thy son after thee.
1: Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. Yes, but let's skip over that, shall we? Because like I said, this Augustine, he says not only does everyone need to cut down on their wine and liquor, he believes that all alcohol should be completely banned as complete abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. In fact, it's because of Augustine, along with his sidekick St Ambrose, that the whole temperance thing becomes one of the four cardinal virtues of Christian ethics. And then, of course, that's vilified further as gluttony and excess in Pope Gregory's Seven Deadly Sins.
0: Okay, folks, so we're talking August and St. Augustine, and perhaps predictably that's veered us across into the Seven Deadly Sins. But before we carry on here, Paulie, I do have to ask you one question. Go on. You know there used to be eight. What? Yes, mate. In fact, before Pope Gregory, there was a fourth century monk, a guy called Evagrius Ponticus, mm-hmm. who listed eight evil thoughts. Oh. They're pretty much the same as the seven deadly sins, with a somewhat bizarre addition of dejection. Which actually, you know, sounds a little bit needy Yes, you're, you're completely right mate. The seven deadly sins as we know them Comes from Pope Gregory in 590 Now he also took some writings of Thomas Aquinas into mm. account Took some biblical examples And he gave us these seven deadly sins That would guarantee us A bizarre range of torments in hell <laughs> Mind you, you though, it's not all doom and gloom with with Gregory. Oh, right. I mean, yes, he was pretty dour, but you were talking about patron saints before. Mm. Well, Gregory, he's the patron saint of, and this is pretty cool, musicians, singers, students, and this would have pleased my old mum's soul, teachers. (laughs) And welcome back, folks. So, today we're talking about all things August
1: or August. What have you got next for us, Paulie? Well, yeah, like I said, we've talked about the month of August, we've talked about Augustus himself, and even that other famous org, St. Augustine. But I have to admit, Mikey, the reason why we've ended up down this bit of a rabbit hole is that while I was back in the UK, travelling around London with my kids, My young son, Bobby, he pointed to the map on the tube and he asked, what is a Blackfriar? (laughs) Now, obviously, there were all sorts of questions he could have asked about that famous tube map, but that's the one he picked, and that's the one that set me thinking. Blackfriars? Yeah, you see, despite the Reformation in England, despite the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, England was still home for many years, and in fact still is today, home to plenty of monks and friars. And even though this particular medieval friary may have disappeared, the area to the south of the city of London where the friary sat for many years on the bank of the Thames, not not far from the Tower of London and Tower Bridge in fact, that area is still referred to as Blackfriars and like many of London's most famous landmarks has its very own tube stop. So, who were these black friars? Well, one set of black friars were the Dominicans, the followers of the Order of St. Dominic, who wore black tunics and black cappers, whereas their rivals, the white friars, were the Carmelites, as in Mount Carmel in the Holy Lands, mentioned in the Bible's Book of Kings. And it turns out, Mikey, it didn't stop there, because you've also got the grey friars and the brown friars, who are the Franciscans, named after St Francis of Assisi. Hey, I, a quick question, we should, we should clear this up. What's the difference between a friar and a monk? Ah, good question, Mikey, and there is a difference, because although both friars and monks, both sets had taken vows of poverty and chastity and obedience, friars they'd said they would do so amongst the wider community, amongst their fellow man, if you think like Friar Tuck in the Robin Hood stories. Right, whereas the monks, they're locked away in the cloisters. Right. But hang on, mate. What's this got to do with August? Okay, so we we mentioned St. Augustine, and the Order of St. Augustine was founded in 1244. Now, originally they were known as the hermits of saint augustine but they did stop being hermits after a while and from then on particularly in england they were known as the austin friars that sounds like a car my nan would have had right but be that as it may like i said at the beginning there were two sets of friars in medieval england who wore black habits and along with the dominicans sure enough the other set the other black friars were these followers of my saint augustine Augustine Blackfriars, gotcha and that's where we get the name on the map (laughs) Well actually Maggie, I'm sorry to say but no, I kept on digging and it turns out that friary was the Dominicans all along but I'm afraid it's a bit too late for that now and anyway, St Dominic didn't get a month named after him so I'm afraid that's just where we are Brilliant Okay, but there is one saving grace to all this, Mikey, and something I never realised until I started looking into the story. You see, Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, Mm -hmm. the founder of the Reformation, and this is something that never seems to get a mention in any of the history books, Martin Luther was a fully signed up friar in the order of St. Augustine from 1505. He joins their ranks, he wears their black habits, and he's a fully paid up member all that time while he's nailing his 95 theses to church doors, right up in fact until he's excommunicated by the Pope in 1520. And on that one, Mikey, the rest, as they say, is history. All right, folks. So there you go. Any questions? Any comments? Just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual: your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle: at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes.
0: And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback.
1: Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And next week, Mikey promises he's going to be nothing if not ship shape. Ahoy. <laughs>